You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We are back. It is August, and we are feeling good about it. Uh, this is, what, the fifth year that we've done this podcast, Michael? I think so. I think this is the beginning of the fifth year. And we are just loving the amount of listener email that we're going to get, bef- that we're getting. But before we get to that, uh, we have a special introduction to make. Uh, as we announced on the last episode and also on the blog, uh, David Grubbs, is has decided to put his nose to that old English grindstone and finish up that dissertation. So he's going to take a brief hiatus from the podcast, two or three months more than likely. And in the meantime, we have invited a friend of mine and a colleague, Dr. Daniel Anderson, uh, we call him Danny, to come on the show. Uh, Danny, you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get rolling? Sure thing. What's this two or three months? At first, I thought it was just two, uh, but that's fine. Uh, I am uh, Danny Anderson. I do also work at Emmanuel College with uh, Dr. Gilmore, Nathan, and uh, I am a, an Americanist. I wrote my dissertation on Jewish American fiction, actually, and I have an interest in like movies and culture in general, and um, I don't know what else to add to that. Is there any information that uh, would be helpful to the listeners? And on Friday nights in Royston, you can find Danny Anderson where? Uh, I like to go to the local wrestling show. Uh, it's, uh, I don't follow big-time wrestling, but uh, the local version of it is is very sweet. And, and, and I think performance art at its finest. And so uh, I very frequently will be there. So I guess. Also, also, going to Royston is like stepping into Hill Valley circa 1955, isn't it? It is. And I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, so coming down here is a uh, uh, an experience in and of itself, and the wrestling has just been kind of a, one of the great pleasures I've had. <laughs> I'm just glad to finally be part of the majority here and have two Americanists versus Nathan, because for four <laughs> years now it has been two, two Britishists and me. Yes, I, I feel for you there. They're all throwing old English jokes out. And, you know, right, sure. yeah. <laughs> Well, at any rate, we have another announcement today. Uh, like we announced last time, the Christian Humanist Empire is expanding. Uh, the first official meeting of the Emmanuel College Christian Humanists will happen on August 30th, so we're excited about that. Uh, and also, we have an online expansion to announce. Michael, won't you take that away? Uh, the first episode of Christian Humanist Profile should, by the time this post, be posted. It'll be its own podcast feed, so you'll need to go to iTunes and search for Christian Humanist Profiles. I interviewed Dr. Timothy Bazelin, who wrote a book on Flannery O'Connor and disability. As I, I thought of should be an interesting interview if you're interested in the subject, or even if you're not. So go listen to that again. That, um, that podcast will be sporadic. It won't be publishing every week, but uh, I believe we've already got another one coming up eventually so <laughs> well we'll just say it's in the works we're so 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 just subscribe to that feed and it'll be updated whenever it gets updated but it won't be every week very good uh michael we've gotten a goodly number of emails 
Uh, I'll go ahead and say if we missed your Facebook post, blog comment, so on and so forth, we do apologize, but we have the the happy burden right now of having more feedback than we can deal with, uh, which honestly, Michael, when we first started this, I never thought we'd get there. It's true. Uh, yeah, I remember the first time we got an email from someone we none of us knew. It was very exciting. It really was. It really was. And now we've got four of them. Uh, Michael, why don't you talk about Aaron first? Uh, yeah, he, he emailed us and he says he wants to say that he loves the podcast, even if one of you is a quasi-Marxist Anabaptist. I believe that's you, Nathan. I think so. <laughs> Another of you has read Christian romance novels, that's David, and the remaining one doesn't speak loudly enough for me to hear him sometimes when I listen to the podcast out on a tractor. And I think that makes the first person who has ever complained that I don't speak loudly enough. Well, I want to say that uh, this is good feedback for me. Things to watch out for. Don't right. speak yeah. loud. Don't be a Marxist. I got and, it. And don't read, don't read Christian romance novels. Right. He says, as someone who is rather young, was raised in the church, knows mostly theology and not much philosophy or literature, your podcasts have done an excellent job introducing me to other things that humans do well so I can be more interesting at cocktail parties. Our goal. I think it would be interesting to hear a podcast on Heidegger. He, he later emailed and apologized for that because, of course, we have a Heidegger episode um, from several years ago. Uh, although you may get another one. Uh, I haven't heard many positive things about him in my confessional Presbyterian circles, but it was interesting to hear him quoted on death in the episode on death. You should also know that by having me as a listener, you've captured the sometimes liberal, sometimes conservative, sometimes libertarian, reformed Presbyterian farmer market segment in Wisconsin. And we were hoping for that. Yeah, it's, it's, we've been talking about going after that market for some time. <laughs> we also got an email from Carter Stepper, who has written in before. Uh, I'd like to thank you as always for the continued inspiration you provide through the show. You've kindled my interest in any number of things from Plato to Dante to existentialism. He goes on, uh, to ask if we could do some existentialist podcasts or blog posts, uh, a sort of must read list of existentialist works. Michael, I mean, I, that sounds like a blog post for you, man. I really ought to do it. It, it, it wouldn't take me too long. I mean, I have my comps list, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Carter, I'll, I'll try to post something like that in the next couple of weeks. School's just starting up here, uh, so it, it's, it's not a great time, but I will, uh, I will try to, uh, I, I will try to set aside a few minutes to, to write that blog post. Right. And then he had two, uh, episode ideas for us. One, uh, an essay on loneliness by, uh, Marilyn Robinson. I always mispronounce that. I'm pretty sure. Uh, and then an episode on Hannah Arendt. Uh, both of those I haven't read recently. Uh, but they sound like interesting ideas. They might be coming down the pike. Who knows? How about Alex, Michael? Yeah, we've got an, uh, this is a long email, so I probably won't read the whole thing. Uh, let's see here. He says his own background is a bit eccentric. He loved reading in high school, but also learned to program in his spare time. He studied computer science, but he got interested in Greek because he wanted to read the New Testament in the original what started out as another hobby continued to develop, and eventually Latin got thrown into the mix as well. By the time I graduated, I decided to pursue graduate work in early Christian literature, and he's about to start his second year of a combined MA-PhD program at Catholic University in D.C. So that's pretty cool, a classicist. Um, he, he says he grew up Pentecostal, and so he understands the sorts of people that Nathan interacts with at a Pentecostal school. And you too, Danny. 
both of you, I guess, yeah. teach the Pentecostal yeah. school. Yeah. Uh, I lack, however, just about all the good and bad stereotypes of Pentecostals, neither their vibrant experiences, nor extroverted nature, nor disdain for structure, nor historical mistrust of learning ca- characterize me particularly well. I wonder if that extroverted nature is supposed to be a good or a bad stereotype of Pentecostals. I was wondering that myself when I read it. I... <laughs> so he, uh, and, and so now he's he's a little more interested in a more developed liturgy as he as he studies it. Catholic University. If I could, uh, I recently was given a book by James Smith uh, called, I believe it's called uh, Thinking in Tongues. Who It's about the sort of Pentecostalism and the intellectual tradition. So he might be interested in that. I've mm-hmm. heard good things about that book, but I haven't read it. He says, uh, uh, Alex says he likes the diversity of academic specialties and evangelical belief you guys share. I certainly need to thank Michael and David for being the first friendly Calvinists I've spent any time listening to on the internet. <laughs> I've had plenty of eye-roll-inducing encounters with the young and restless crowd, so it was refreshing to come across at least two people with such a different disposition. So, well, thank you. I always like being told I'm the only good uh, one of something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he says that, that he, he has mostly uh, read French literature um, and that we have opened his horizons to new things. And he says his favorite episodes are examinations of particular texts, which... I don't know. You may get more of because eventually we're going to run out of big topics and have to just start reading something together and talking about it. So. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was sort of brainstorming this summer of you know episode ideas for this year, I mean, it was a lot of individual texts. Yeah, so uh, you may get your wish. That, that's gonna uh, we, we've been we've been hitting it pretty hard, and, and so uh, it, it may continue. And he does have a few episode ideas for us: uh, foreign language. Uh, which I considered doing for next week, actually, but I don't think I'm ready to talk about it. Um, he has a, a sermon here from St. Basil, and we did our Greek patristics episode, or, or our, uh, father, our Greek fathers episode, whatever we call it. Yeah, so, I think it was like episode three. Yeah, it was way back, so it may be time to revisit it, especially since I've since actually read some of Since we're on 108 now. now. Uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, sci-fi in general. I think he may be happy with something that's happening later this semester. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis's critics, old English, uh, and I guess I just won't be there for that one because uh, <laughs> I took history of the modern le- Western, or uh, excuse me, history of the English language and got a uh, C plus. And I remember we had to memorize the Song of Cadmet in Old English, and uh, I didn't do very well. So that's that's uh, if we do that one, I'm going to have to be quiet. Contemporary poetry was his other suggestion. So. Some of those are Lots very good. good episode ideas. I can promise you, you'll get at least one of those things soon. Yes, yes. Uh, we also got an email from William Ockham, which is a great screen name. If it's actually your name as well, even better. It, uh, says, it says on the email, yes, it's a pseudonym. Oh, does it really? Oh, yeah, it does. I, I didn't read that far. My apologies. My apologies. Um, first of all, he has some comments uh, about the podcast in general. He says, I recently discovered your podcast and want to thank you all for the time and effort you devote to having high-quality conversations. All of you come across as intelligent and funny, which makes it enjoyable to listen to. Uh, And he's working through past episodes, and he's made it through episode 90. That's some dedication right there. Uh, He did want to say that he wished that we had touched on the influence of uh, Teilhard de Chardin, and again, I'm sure I mispronounced that, on Flannery O'Connor. Uh, he provided us an article link to that, so that's something certainly 
I'll take a look at and think about. The, the but... phenomenon of man has been sitting on my. I'm looking at it now. Been sitting on my bookshelf for years, waiting for me to read it, and I still haven't gotten around to it. So I apologize. Okay. And once again, he's got some episode suggestions. And by the way, listeners, keep sending these in because again, we're this is episode 108. We're <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to come up with ideas. Uh, but another episode on science uh, with an emphasis on contributions by Christians and other religious figures to the history of science, uh, the Roman Empire, and good popes and bad popes. And that third one makes me very nervous, so I don't know if, <laughs> <laughs> if you'll ever hear that one, but hey, you know. It, it would have to be uh, on, uh, oh man, it's early in the morning. Uh, it, it would have to be uncontroversially good popes, and uncontroversially bad popes. Yeah, and preferably popes from at least 600 years ago. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get I get nervous talking about Catholicism since none of us are Catholics. Although he says we ought to have a Catholic guest to balance it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, at any rate, guys, I think that'll that'll about do it for listener feedback. Listeners, keep writing in. We love to hear from you. We love to hear your stories of how you discovered the podcast, all that sort of good stuff. But for today's subject matter, uh, I actually sort of got this topic dropped on me. Uh, just a week or so before our new faculty workshops started up, uh, there was a very widely redistributed post on the CNN belief blog called why millennials are leaving church. Then about a week later, our, uh, faculty workshop at Emmanuel college started off with a discussion of the millennials as students. Uh, so I thought, you know, why not give a little bit of Christian humanist treatment to it? Ask some of the questions that don't get usually looked into in these sort of conversations. So, Michael, without further ado, when I think of the concept of a generation, because a lot of times the millennials are referred to as the Generation Y or the millennial generation, but when I think of that term in broad national terms, uh, my mind first goes to the generation gap, as they called it in post-World War II America. Uh, what sorts of people started using that term and what kinds of phenomena did that term try to name? Well, if you and the listeners will think way back to our youth ministry episode, which I think was our very first season or maybe the second, um, we talked about the history of teenagers. And so the, 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 the concept of the generation gap is really bound up in the history of teenagers. So you get in the 50s youth culture arising. You get um, in theaters, you get Marlon Brando and James Dean. You get J.D. Salinger writing Catcher on the Rye. You get... Uh, a little later, Bob Dylan um, and, and people like that uh, kind of protesting the the adult world, for for lack of a better term. So, so this youth culture arises and it pushes back against the establishment. And so that is where the generation gap comes from. Um, sociologists, I could, you know, I couldn't find the the first person to call it a generation gap. Uh, but it is, a, it is a term that comes out of the social sciences in the 1950s and early 60s. And what happens is in the 60s, the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement make that generation gap even more obvious. And so you get a generally liberal group of young people pushing against a generally conservative group of older people. Um, now, this is not the first generation gap. People had been noticing differences in generations for hundreds of years. There's a famous quote, if you look around on the internet at all about the generation gaps, you'll, you'll come up with this quote by Alexis de Tocqueville that says, among democratic nations, each generation is a new people. 
de Tocqueville is writing in the early 19th century. And so, I mean, you're obviously this is not exactly a new phenomenon, but what happens is in the late 20th century, society begins changing much faster than it had been before. It's not that society didn't change before. It's that technological speed allows society in the 50s and 60s to change at a much faster rate than it had before. And so the generation gap becomes either, depending on how you look at it, more noticeable or actually larger. Mm -hmm. So that's where it comes from. And I'll say that de Tocqueville's statement is an... Even even his is an understatement because he says among democratic nations, each generation is a new people. In fact, uh, it's among all nations because the USSR also had a generation gap in the sixties. Hmm. All right, Danny. Is there is there any other context where you've heard that term used that you'd want to pitch in here? Well, I think uh, Michael's hit most of what I have found about it too. I think that a lot of it's bound up in in kind of the the tying to group age groups to their own specific institutions. So there are sort of entertainment um, ah, cultures okay. that are, that are built up where you have, you know, books and, and music and, and, and films that are sort of marketed towards specific people. And then you have sort of the, the world of work, which was kind of uh, a grown up adult space. And then you sort of have the world of school and then teenagers became their own sort of like institution in and of themselves. And so I think that I would agree with uh, pretty much everything that, that Michael said there. Hmm. And it's interesting. I, and I wish I could remember what the original source of it was. But on the uh, on the media podcast, which is an NPR podcast that I listen to every week, they had a an episode on uh, Bing Crosby and his rise. And, you know, long about the time that mass produced recorded music was something that you could actually purchase in most American towns. And they're reading some quotes from you know, conservative figures of the day saying that, you know, Bing Crosby was going to lead America's youth into sensuality and degradation. Well, before, <laughs> well he, he did. He, he did that song with David Bowie, right? And so, <laughs> uh, that had actually happened. But even, even before that, think of the, think of the twenties. Think of, I mean, really what you get in the early sixties is just a replay of what you already had in the twenties, a laxening of sexual mores you you get uh youth culture rising up popular music rising up in in the 20s it's hot jazz in the in the 50s and 60s it's rock and roll Mm -hmm. uh you get literature written by dissipated and disaffected 20 somethings again you, you get salinger and kerouac doing it in the 50s and 60s and in the um in the 20s you have hemingway and fitzgerald uh, yes. so so the, the degree to which there's a generation gap in uh, between – I really hate the term greatest generation because it's so clearly crafted by a PR person from that generation. But <laughs> Well, by Tom Brokaw, actually. He, he coined it. I, I, I think the, the more acceptable term is the vets. Uh, right. Between the vets and the Well, and I mean in, in his defense, Michael, real quick, just on that term, I mean he wrote it as a tribute to his father rather than to himself. So it's actually not a self-appointed thing like Renaissance would be or – enlightenment would be it's actually something bestowed on the previous generation by a grateful child so i i I have some sympathy for the term the greatest generation all right then (laughs) well one question i have about that though is and i think it speaks to a lot of the ways we think about generations in that we almost define them retroactively in reaction to things we don't like about young people today, whatever, whenever that today happens to be. And I feel mm-hmm. like uh, I see almost the greatest generation being a term 
sniping at Nathan and mine, my our, my generation. Um, or the, the boomers. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I feel like um, in some ways it's it's kind of a fallacy to think you can apply like one kind of homogenous definition to an entire group of people. But mm-hmm. I suppose we'll get to that more towards the end. Right, right. No, that's, that's certainly the case. That's certainly the case. Michael, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. I mean, was there? Did you want to finish that thought? Uh, no, I don't remember what the thought was. Just, okay, all just, right. <laughs> just that I, I, I think we overlook that generation gap. But you know, that that group of people is called the lost generation. So maybe we don't overlook it. And I, I just wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about it. But um, worth noting. Yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought about that before the greatest generation. They were the lost generation. <laughs> the, 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 my point is, the 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 baby boomers didn't invent youth culture. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, right. Just just like they didn't invent all the other things that baby boomers like to take credit for. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, Danny, since I've actually got two Americanists at my disposal for the first time in the podcast history, uh, I want to hear you and then Michael talk about a 20th century American literary text or two uh, that get its energy at least in part from the conflict between the old and the young. Uh, and if you two don't completely exhaust my American literature background, I might chime in with a third one when you're done. So you only have four books that you know in, in American literature? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I... Uh, <laughs> well, that's a tricky question on some level because it's difficult to think of any book that doesn't do that to some degree. If you think of Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence theory. Uh, and, and so I, um, you, I would look to many of the things that, that Michael's already talked about, Salinger and the Beats and those people, as sort of obvious examples. And going back a little further, I think Fitzgerald and, and that sort of uh, those expatriates and around that time too. But I, a couple things that stood out to me then. Um, and also Faulkner. Don't forget about Faulkner talking about sort of the generation gap of the sort of younger Southerners inheriting sort of the sins of their fathers and, and, uh, and, uh, the sort of antebellum era. And so I one think or two, that, Danny, one or two. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I was, <laughs> you just sure. wiped out entirely, entire <laughs> literary movements. <laughs> That's okay. He hasn't, he hasn't touched mine yet. So, well, it's all sort of introductory stuff. One that I would like to sort of point out is possibly an interesting one is good. The, just a short story, good country people by, uh, Flannery O'Connor, where you have a mother, uh, who's sort of of a specific generation and cannot understand her daughter, Holga, uh, who's a self, self-named Holga, um, who's sort of obviously overtly in everything she does rebelling against her mother's generation and all of its sort of core ideologies. And so that's a short story, I think, that both uh, deals with, gets its energy from, as Nathan says, this uh, generation tension, this gap, but also I think in many ways points fun at it or makes fun of it. Uh, and so I think that's a really interesting version of it. Another one um, that I have, I just sort of am thinking of is Lolita. Uh, if you think about uh, Humbert Humbert's meditations, extended meditations on the kind of young people of the day. And he's sort of uh, kind of a, I know an unreliable narrator in many ways and a despicable person, but uh, it, it's an interesting to see a meditation in that book about a generation gap, about the youth culture of that day from the perspective of an older person though. And that, that's kind of a, a, a unique way to look at it. Um, and I could go on, uh, can I throw a, throw a third one out? It's a little off the, 
off the grid. Throw a third one in there. All right, sorry. Um, I don't know how long. (laughs) I don't know how long you want me to talk about it. I'm really my big goal for today is to not sort of get in the way, and I feel like I've done so already. No, just keep uh, it rolling, man. Keep uh, it rolling. A book that recently came out, maybe five or six years ago, came out is by a Jewish writer named Michael Shabon. Uh, the Yiddish Policeman's Union. He's a actually a quite famous writer. I'm sure everyone's heard of him. But this book is is an interesting. The book's like thesis. It's it, it's genesis was as a snipe against older Jewish people who um, basically have elevated Yiddish to this kind of mythical uh, status. And, and so Michael Shabon admits in essays that he's written about how he found that to be very strange because Yiddish it implies that there is an actual place that Yiddish was actually spoken as the official language of the country. And, and so he basically took that uh, generation gap and that sort of ideology of Yiddish um, for the older generation and made a whole book about it, making fun of it. And this book, likewise, has become very controversial and many uh, conservative people um, find it to be anti-Zionist and all that. Um, but that's a book that really takes a generation gap within a specific culture and kind of runs with it. And so uh, that's one that kind of came to me as I was uh, thinking about this question. And, and Danny, I don't have to tell you that nobody does generation gap fiction like the like the uh, Jewish American writers of the 50s and 60s. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, Philip Roth, I mean, he famously antagonized his parents' generation and then wrote fiction about the antagonization, right? And so, yeah. Right, and then only to only to be on the uh, the other side of that when he got older, which is interesting. I didn't even think about that until just now. That his late books are very much him being antagonized by young people. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Actually, he's uh, yeah. In uh, Exit Ghost is a really good example of that. The the uh, Zuckerman character of his, I believe that's the ninth book that he's in, and uh, yeah, that is a, a book in which. He's now sort of appalled by like young liberals that he was once you know a member of that class in his day. Oh, it's so nice to have somebody on here who talks about books I know. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Wrap it up, Barbara. That, so. <laughs> well, as will surprise nobody, I'm going to talk about Updike. Um, specifically, the first two books in the Rabbit tetralogy, um, where in in Rabbit Run, Rabbit Angstrom is very much presented as this depending on how you read the book, this heroic young person fighting against the the strictures of adult society or a whiny young person fighting against responsibility that he himself took on, however you want to read it. But what's more interesting to me is the second book, Rabbit Redux, which is a really, really violent, ugly book. Maybe the ugliest thing Updike ever wrote. I always tell people who want to read through the Rabbit series, uh, you're just going to have to kind of hold your breath through Rabbit Redux because it's so ugly. Um, but what happens in that book is society itself has turned into rabbit angstroms. Uh, he abandons his wife and family in the first book. Society has kind of abandoned its moorings, as Updike sees it, in the second book. And and what's interesting is Rabbit is so much of a nonconformist that his only response to this is to become outrageously conservative. Um, to 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 be suddenly the defender of family and tradition and America that that in the first book he was all too willing to run against or run away from, um, and so that book although I don't think it's a good book I don't think Robert Redux is good I think I think it has interesting things to say about generations and about nonconformity and about the sort of person who 
kicks against the pricks, as it were. Have either of you read that book? No, I, I haven't. haven't. It's that, on my that, shelf, but I've not gotten, gotten around to it. Right. It does. Your analysis of it, though, is interesting because, in, in many ways, it reminds me of my my critique of the whole idea of labeling generations, in that one just sort of criticizes in the later generation what one did themselves. Right. Basically. Right. So yeah. Well, and, and you know who else it reminds me of is Kerouac. Oh who's yes, th- who's uh, this grand <laughs> prophet of the Beat Generation, and then turns around and becomes a racist conservative Catholic. Not that being conservative or being Catholic makes you a racist, but he just happened <laughs> to be all three. Um, at the end of his life, and so that I mean, I, I wonder, I wonder if if Updike was consciously invoking that, especially since Rabbit Run is supposedly directly a response to On the Road. There's a, a fascinating uh, one of these television talk show, like in the Donahue style, uh, with uh, during the the Vietnam War, with Kerouac at the time being fully in support of the war, uh, really sniping at hippies who were saying, "We used to idolize you, man. You were our inspiration. Here you are fighting against us." And so, yeah, that that's a really interesting example. Well, Nathan, did we hit? Uh, did we take everything you know, or can you? Actually, no. Uh, the the two examples I thought of, and I intentionally tried to go sort of away from John Updike because I knew that's where you'd go, Michael, and away from Jewish American novels because that's where I knew you'd go, Danny. Uh, one example is actually from 1973, uh, and it is the oft anthologized Alice Walker short story "Everyday Use." Oh yeah, and it is a fascinating study of how the generation gap functions in a very different context from the way that folks usually think about it. You know, if we are tempted to regard the generation gap as something that is a white middle-class phenomenon, uh, Alice Walker reminds us that, you know, when uh, Dee Wangaro brings home her boyfriend, Asalaam Alaikum, which actually isn't his name, but that's one of the funniest gags, I think, in, I mean, in often anthologized short story history, uh, you know, it, it's something that, you know, comes home to other communities as well. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a really short story. You can find, you know, texts of it online as well as easily downloaded essays on that story. Believe me, I know this from experience. Uh, <laughs> Nathan, along those lines, have you read um, Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior? Can't say that I have. Tell me a little bit about it. That That is yet another immigrant text about the generation gap, except there it's Asian-American. And there, there she she really tries to find her own way in the world by developing a connection to tr- her own tradition in a way that is not typical of the other books we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you bring up Walker and saying how we think of this as a white phenomenon made me think of Hong Kingston. Mm-hmm. And and I think in general, ethnic fiction uh, is a place to find this theme highlighted um, as, as central because. It, so often that fiction is about trying to claim an American identity for oneself. And, and that often means fighting against the kind of legacy that your family and, and your culture has left you. And so generational conflict is a very almost ne- necessary element of that kind of fiction. Right. And then the other one, it, it sort of points forward to the, the second half of our conversation. And it is uh, Chuck Palahniuk, and I always mispronounce his name, so I'm just going to pronounce it that way. Uh, his novel Fight Club, uh, I mean, it is a meditation on what happens when the most famous generation gap, 
you know, in recent American memory has kids. Uh, and, you know, it is a, a scathing, biting uh, satire, really, on just sort of the idiocy of pop culture as it gets old. Uh, and consumerism. And, you know, the, what now? And consumerism. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the famous, you know, speech that, you know, Tyler Durden gives about, you know, we've we've all grown up thinking that we're going to be movie stars and or no movie actors and rock stars, but we're not. And now we've found out the truth and we're very pissed off. Or, uh, you know, I mean, I, that is. In my mind, I mean, that's sort of a postmodern generation gap, right? I mean, it is the rebellion of youth without a smidgen of the idealism. Well, he says, he says, uh, we think of God as our father, but all of our fathers abandoned us. So what does that say about God? Right. Right. I think he calls them the middle children of history too. Yes. Yes. I don't love that book, but that's a great line. Oh, and see, I, well, and of course, Danny, one of our students, uh, Thor, whose you know, birth certificate name, we won't pronounce on air. Uh, Thor. (laughs) Uh, he just idolizes that novel, which is funny since he's far too young to know Generation X angst. <laughs> but, hey, what are you going to do? That's literature for you, right? Well, he idolizes music from that era, too, though. So that's Yeah, cool. he really does. And that's, <laughs> you know, that that's an episode we could do. You know, what happens to pop culture eras when iPods become the norm? Mm. But that's a, that's a question not for this episode. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> I, I I looked down the rabbit trail, but I won't go there. So, I mean, those are the two that I think of, and I, I picked that se- second one specifically to sort of transition into the next big generational division that people usually talk to. Of course, as we know, Pete Townsend didn't get his wish. The baby booners, in fact, have gotten old, and not all of them have died. Uh, Michael, <laughs> since you're the only one of the current trio who isn't part of that nebulous thing called Generation X... Uh, say a few words about why pop sociologists felt the need to distinguish yet another generation and what anxieties surrounded the rise of the Anderson Gilmore generation. Yeah, I am a millennial, as I like to point out to my colleagues here at Crown when they start complaining about millennials in the classroom. <laughs> um, baby boomers are so famously self-centered that I wonder if they thought their own children wouldn't rebel against them. <laughs> Which is kind of the plot of uh, Family Ties, although the way most of the Generation X rebelled was not the not the way of Alex P. Keaton. Um, although, there I go again with that generational thinking. Um, Generation X people are born from the early 1960s to the late 1970s, which is crazy for me to think about, because that means there are now Generation Xers who are in their 50s? Yes, there are. Which I, I did not realize. I, I, I still think of the of the Generation X folks as being about 28 don't I wish? Which is younger than me. <laughs> uh, they were originally, I don't know if you know this, originally Generation X was called the Baby Busters, mm-hmm. which is funny because there's actually more of them than the Baby Boomers, so I think that's why they changed the name. The actual term Generation X was not coined for your generation, but for the Baby Boomers. It was coined by the photographer Robert Coppa in the 1950s. It was used, to again, to describe the Baby Boomers. It was first applied to you guys by the Canadian novelist Douglas Coupland, who wrote a novel called Generation X um, in 1991, and the subtitle of that book was Tales for an Accelerated Culture. And he, he became, because of that book, something of a spokesman for your generation. Have either of you read that book? I have not read that book. No, I've seen it referred to a number of times, but I've not read it myself. I've read two others by him, but I haven't read that one. 
Um, so I, I can't speak about that book. Uh, generation X is the first generation to really grow up immersed in television. You were the first generation to have televisions in your bedrooms. Uh, MTV was particularly important. Uh, it, probably as important as rock music in general was for the boomers. David Foster Wallace points this out in his essay, E Unibus Plurum. Baby boomer writers distrust television. Generation Xers embrace it. They can't not embrace it. Um, mm -hmm. But they do so ironically because at the same time that they grew up watching television, they know, you know, they've heard the arguments against television. And so irony becomes this big buzzword in scare reports about Generation X. Uh, again, I'm speaking in broad terms. I, I certainly don't mean to suggest that all Generation Xers are, 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 are the... Uh, the sort of ironic caricature of young people you you would see in a movie like uh, Reality Bites, which I would say is is the easy writer for Generation X. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, broad. Really, what we're talking about is cultural cultural representations of the generations. Um, if baby boomers are marked by idealism, Generation Xers are supposedly marked by a general refusal to make heroes. And, and you really, I, I was thinking about this, and you might connect it with Leotard's incredulity toward meta-narratives. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, if that connection is genuine, Generation X is the first really postmodern generation. It's a generation that didn't want leaders. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the degree to which any of this is an accurate portrayal of people who are currently 35 to 50 is up for debate. Um, and we'll I, debate it. I read a uh, I read a study that said that the much vaunted Generation X cynicism did not survive the aging of the generation, and that in fact Generation Xers are happier than baby boomers were at this age. Hmm. Um, so uh, you know, D Danny asked earlier if if it's really useful to talk about qualities across a generation, and and I would say it's probably not. And what we're really talking about is how media and culture portray people of a certain age. Right. And I, th I think that's, that's clearer in generation X than it is with the baby boomers. And millennials are characterized by jumping the gun. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're so entitled. <laughs> well, Danny, I, I'm sure we've already irritated any millennials listening out there going half an hour without actually mentioning millennials. And I'm probably going to pay for that. Uh, but what grand social changes led folks to label the millennials as something different from Generation X people? And what are some of the alleged differences? Well, I, like I said before, I think that some of it is just this desire we have as a culture to differentiate people into as discrete groups as we can. Um, and so because many of the, the traits that you see attributed to millennials are just sort of not really differences in kind, but more differences in degree. And so uh, w one sort of cliched uh, differentiation between the two generations I saw was Generation X uh, rejects rules and Generation or the millennials rewrite the rules. And so how is that particularly different? But uh, um, so this, these are, you know, some of the uh, kind of issues that come up when you just have a a group of people who are too old to be thought of as a youth generation now. And so we, now we need to name the new youth generation something. And so the millennials, the first sort of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, treatise that I was able to run across on them was a book called millennials rising. Um, and this was written when 
most of them were about 18. And, and it was a very kind of glowing um, estimation of what they were going to do, how they were going to basically recapture the, the moral and, and uh, kind of etho, the moral kind of ethical systems of the, the greatest generation, quote unquote. It's written by uh, a, a couple of guys, Howe and Strauss. Um, and, and much of what they wrote has in subsequent studies been uh, challenged. Uh, they, they, they were written about as being very altruistic and, and their volunteerism was lauded and that sort of thing. And now we think of them as being narcissistic and self-centered. And, and so um, people wonder if some of their, uh, they were looking at their volunteer hours, for example, Howen Strauss, and, and making it as a, a de facto statement of their generosity when now we think of them as is it being sort of a careerist idea to get into a good college? You know, <laughs> that's why they were volunteering so much in high school. And so th these are uh, um, some of the cliches of that, of that group. And now, of course, we think of them um, as being particularly needy and you have to hold your, their hand everywhere they go. And this is, I, I need to clarify, I'm speaking of the, the perception, not necessarily the reality of this group, Michael. Uh, my apologies. Um, but, How dare um, you? That's okay. I, uh, <laughs> I, I I said my piece about Generation X. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it isn't a it isn't my my opinion. I actually like teaching them actually in many ways. And in fact, that's one thing that I I did come across is that Generation Xers typically do get along quite well with the millennials um, in you know comparison to the way previous generation gaps have sort of interacted in the workplace and in other places. So, and I certainly found it to be true in my, in Oh, that's my a case. really good point, Danny. Cause I mean, really, I mean, if you look for people who are pulling their hair out about these millennials, it'll generally be a baby boomer pulling hair out. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's my, all the, and all of, and, and I don't mean to get off the topic of the question, but one of the, the difficulties I see, particularly in our discourse about this generation, it seems to come up is a, it all comes almost all of the conversation centers around their place in the workplace. Um, so we've kind of reduced them to their function as economic right. engines. Right. Um, Thank you, Bill Clinton. Yes, exactly. And, and B, I think that so much of it is market driven in itself. It's like the, the discourse about this generation. Yeah. Is roll, a with that, roll with that. <laughs> and so there's a lot of money to be made giving seminars about how to deal with this generation in the workplace. And, and I feel like in some ways, whatever sort of negative attributes we place on this generation, the millennials, Generation Y, whatever we want to call them, no longer call them Generation Y, but um, is basically more of a reflection on our own kind of skewed value systems as a broader culture. So that, that's sort of my take on the, the, how I would talk about this generation. And, and of course, other changes do make it a natural kind of generational break. These are people who grew up post 9-11, right? They're dealing with a much different... Some of them. Yeah, yes, that's true. Well, um, begins in 1981. I was 20 years old when 9/11 happened. Oh, uh, that's a good point. Okay, all right, that's a good point. But mo most of your sort of 20s then have been um, growing up not under the auspices of the Cold War, but of this sort of global, much more kind of uh, uh, ambiguous threat of terrorism and, and that sort of thing. And so this has led people to sort of try and identify, I think more psychological effects than, than sociological effects on individuals who grew up during these time periods. That, that is one sort of uh, natural break between um, 
the kind of cultural experiences I think in these two generations. I, I would say the internet, you, you know, if it was rock music for the baby boomers and it was MTV for generation X, I think the internet is the, the big kind of technological force for millennials. Mm-hmm. And I, I do wonder what that, what that does to us. Mm-hmm. I do too, as a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one interesting place where some really good exploration happened, uh, and I don't know how many of these resources are still available online, uh, but actually uh, Trip Fuller over at Homebrew Christianity hosted a conference, I want to say five or six years ago, called Theology After Google, that really did some good sort of cultural or media ecology, I'll call it that way, meditations on how church life happens in an age where, you know, the preacher doesn't have as much information about the Bible as the device in everyone's hand out in the pews. Yeah, and not just that. I'm I'm just I'm just thinking about Well, you know, the internet is a no man's land. It's a, it's an it's an amoral <laughs> wasteland in a lot of ways. And, and uh-huh. I, I, I just I just think about kids being exposed to this at eight, nine, ten years old. Right, right. And 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 what happens to them? How how they end up seeing the world. I remember hearing the comedian Amy Schumer, who's filthy, uh, talk about <laughs> how sex was different for her generation. She's probably three or four, she's probably late generation X. She's probably three or four four years older than I am. Mm-hmm. Um and and how she she wonders about the men who grow up having watched internet porn since they were 11 years old. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which whatever you think about the baby boomers, whatever you think about generation X really wouldn't have been possible. Right, right. And in addition to sort of the content that they're exposed to, but the very form in which they acquire information being different and being much quicker and, and so much easier access, there's a lot of talk about the ability to concentrate on, on single tasks. In fact, uh, Nathan, you just forwarded something uh, this morning, I think I, I saw it, uh, about the, your cell phone is killing you. And, and it's sort of, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I do think that there are, the technology is always. A, di- a distinguishing factor between generations. Mm-hmm. For Generation X, it was the kind of ubiquity of television. Um, my wife always gets on me for using the word ubiquitous, and here I did it again. But I um, <laughs> uh, apologize for that, Kim. But um, the um, like, we had TVs in our room, and so again, it's sort of a, a, a change, or a, a difference in degree, and not necessarily kind. Like technology is different, and it's just becoming ever more individualized and personal. And I think that that. Has I, that does have broader social ins- implications? I do believe, mm-hmm. and not great ones, but yeah, not necessarily <laughs> great ones. Yes, for right. particularly for people interested in traditional sort of humanism, as I imagine many of your listeners are. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I would be lying if I pretended that the recent blog storm triggered by Rachel Held Evans, but before that, really, I mean, given fuel to burn by Brett McCracken's hipster Christianity and David Kinnaman's You Lost Me and other books, wasn't part of my motivation to have this conversation. Since all three of us are parishioners as well as college professors, uh, I'll just leave this relatively open for you. What do you have to say about young adults relating to ecclesial membership? Uh, If there is indeed a revolutionary change afoot, uh, what's its character? And if not, how would you describe things differently? I really don't know what to think. Um... I am, as our listeners know, mainline, and there are not very many young adults 
in the mainline churches I've gone to. Although to be fair, there aren't li- really a lot of people in their forties either. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see a lot of millennials, but I don't see a whole lot. That's still whole, young. Whole lot of generation, <laughs> but they're not millennials. That, that's my. Point. I know. Like, I know. I'm joking. You like I'm to joking. think so, Nathan. Um. Among the many responses to that blog post by Evans was one by Scott McKnight in which he deals with some statistics about millennial church membership. Um, and he, he takes these statistics from Brad Wright's Christians are hate-filled hypocrites and other lies you've been told. And I should say, uh, I think I, I was turned onto the McKnight post by a friend of the show, Chris Garretts. So uh, you're dealing with information, several people back here. But here's the relevant data from, from that uh, post. 12% of young adults in the 70s and 80s were unaffiliated. Now 25% are. But that's the same number as with other age groups. So 25% of Generation Xers, I assume, are also unaffiliated. 25% of baby boomers are unaffiliated. Um, mm-hmm. 22% of young adults right now are evangelicals, and that's actually up from the 70s but down from the 90s, although just a couple of percentage points. Um, unaffiliated people who mark unaffiliated has increased for young adults, but the number who are affiliated with particular churches has remained the same. Those affiliated with evangelicals, black Protestants, and the Roman Catholic Church are the same as in the 70s. It's just the main line that's down. So the pessimism I see may be just from the types of churches I attend. He -hmm. says there's no signs of cataclysmic or big changes. Mm -hmm. I would like to believe McKnight, but I'm a pessimist. I don't spend a lot of time, when when I am on the internet, I don't spend a lot of time at Christian websites, so most of the young adults I come in contact with on the internet are not Christians, not believers, and often quite hostile. And so I I don't know, I feel like, I I don't know, I feel like, uh, I feel like Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach, you know, I feel, I feel like, I feel like the sea of faith is ebbing. Uh, mm-hmm. but I am in general cultural pessimist. And so I, I don't know how much I can believe my feelings on this matter. I think, I think, you know, it depends on whether you want to believe my perception or whether you want to believe statistics. Danny, what would you add? Well, I haven't read either of these books, but, um, I, I do think that if you define a church affiliation in more traditional senses, like Michael's saying, then I think that it does look scary because the church tradition I grew up in really, even in my generation, once you graduated high school, you really didn't go back to church until um, you had kids of your own. You wanted to raise in church. And so, I mean, this wasn't my personal story, but many of the people I grew up with. And, and I do think though, that the kind of rise of the sort of mega church has made it more difficult to, to say these kinds of things. And, and, and I do think that there is a, that is a kind of church, an expression of, of worship that does um, mirror the cultural experience that many millennials are used to. It's very, I don't mean to be demeaning of it, but uh, you can identify consumeristic sorts of elements in these giant churches where it's like going to the mall as much as it's like going to church. And, and I think that that makes it a little tricky to say that they, they have no faith. And in fact, I would say that the people that I, the young people that I go to church with, though I may sort of disagree with much of their kind of, uh, system of belief and sort of their cultural approaches to, <clears throat> to life. But um, I do at least think of them as taking it more seriously, um, taking their faith more seriously than I certainly did at their age. <laughs> and, and, and I feel like 
that's a function of having to sort of carve it out for oneself instead of just plugging into these um, sort of traditional church structures. And so uh, my experience in this is purely experiential and, and I have no sort of data. This is not scientific at all, but this is just sort of mm-hmm. my impression. Um, and, and so I at once do feel like there is a kind of disturbing lack of uh, respect for traditions and, and lack of attachment to very valuable traditions. But at the same time, in their own way, I think there is a, a, a sincerity to, to this sorts of uh, like religious affiliation, however you want to say it, that is heartening on another level. Yeah, I, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, you look at, you look at Europe, and, and, you know, in parts of Europe, 25% of people are Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that sounds horrible at first until you, you really ask yourself how many, what percentage of people in America belong to the invisible church? You, you know, what, what, sorts, what, what percentage of people in America go beyond cultural Christianity? And, you know, in truth, the number is probably close to 25%, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean maybe what we're maybe what we're dealing with here is a is a purging of people who felt like they had to be Christians for cultural reasons and what we're going to be left with is people who are serious about it. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. my hope. Well, Danny, we've already touched on this on the way through the episode, but I wanted to dedicate a few minutes here towards the end to possible critiques of the whole sociological notion that people belong to generations uh, which develop gaps between them. Uh, To what extent do those metaphors do good work and to what extent do they obscure the ways that we talk and think about human communities? Well, like I said, I I think that... Let me go back to the O'Connor short story that I talked about, Good Country People. Um, I think this is a good way for me, at least, to get my mind around the idea of generations. Um, it does, ref- it does sort of uh, present a generation gap, but it does so almost as a critique of the way we think about generations in that, yes, there's uh, two age groups that are not getting along and not seeing the world in the same way, and yet it's impossible to read that story without seeing that that is an extremely, uh, that's extremely defined by issues of class and uh, sort of uh, uh, education level. And so I have a hard time thinking that we can lump, say, rural Hispanics in with Brooklyn hipster whites uh, into the same generation just because they're the same age. They have completely different kinds of educational backgrounds, um, cultural um, legacies, and uh, ability to buy things. And, all, and uh, all of these things make for very kind of localized um, uh, generations, if you want to say it that way. And, and to simply lump everybody of a certain age bracket into one kind of big bucket. That's a mixed metaphor. Apologize for that. But, um, and, and to simply do that is to kind of miss a lot of the details of very differentiated experiences. And so I, to me, that, that, that's one major drawback. Michael, what have you got? That 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 sounds reasonable to me. Is to to the degree that we talk about generations at all, we should talk about it as one element in a in a wide assortment of things that make people who they are, including individual differences, of course. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I if I could add to that, I mean, what I would say is that you also have characteristics that people attribute to 
older people that often show up in, you know, communities of younger people. You've got, you know, things that are often attributed to the young that still show up in communities of the old. And uh, I'm going to just go ahead and play the type here since someone referred to me as a Marxist Anabaptist and say, you know, (laughs) this is very often a function of the modes of production, right? Uh, People who are not responsible for their own living, right, you know, who do not have to provide for themselves, tend to remain in that youth mode for a longer span of time, whereas people who are forced into being the providers very often, and I'll use the, the common cliche here, grow up fast. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it it's one of those things where, you know, I've definitely seen, you know, 20-year-olds who get married and start having kids, and it seems the most logical thing in the world. Uh, I also know people in their mid to late 30s who still live at home with their parents and, you know, uh, don't show any sign of moving out anytime soon. Uh, and in my experience, and, you know, like Danny said, this is more anecdotal than statistical. Uh, these are functions of social position as much as they are of, um, you know, generation as some sort of broad overarching category. I agree with that. I, I just actually read this week an article that kind of categorizes <clears throat> excuse me, people who are sort of entrepreneurial by nature. So entrepreneur, <clears throat> entrepreneurs typically have uh, these personality traits as being risk takers as youth. They often do illegal things when they're young and that sort of thing. And that somehow prepares them for a life as a, a, a someone starting a business. The joke writes itself. Yes, yeah, I know, it really I know. does. <laughs> I leave you to like derive your own conclusions from this. But um, the article went on to critique that and, and to say that they also happen to be overwhelmingly white because people of color living in an inner city who are engaging in these same kinds of behaviors end up in jail for what they're doing, whereas yeah. um, mm-hmm. um, privileged you know, whiter people uh, don't necessarily do that. So they have sort of the opportunity to uh, um, um, – to, to make use of this, <laughs> of these uh, traits instead of uh, being punished for them. And I think that that's a, an example of uh, the way that t- talking about generations in giant swaths is, is limiting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, as we head for the doors here, uh, I want each of us to pose one good Socratic question for our listeners to ponder, uh, something to help us have more interesting philosophical and theological conversations about this whole cluster of phenomena. Uh, Michael, I'll let you lead off, and Danny, you can hit second, and I'll bat third. Mine is something I've been dancing around for most of the episode, which is what role does technology play in all this? If if it's true that the, the generation gap is more obvious in the, let's say, starting in the 20s than ever before because of technology, what does that mean for the world we live in in which technological progress is unchecked and unquestioned? What is uh what is go- what is going to happen with future generations? How how far apart is this going to push people eventually? Danny, what do you got? Well, um, somewhat similar. I, I do think that we need to think about the role that money has in our even thinking about generations. Like, to what role does the idea that there is money to be made on exploiting the notion of generations? Uh, influence the way we label people. And so I think it, it can be almost a self-determination uh, or a, a 
term when you identify with a generation that someone has uh, published in a book that they're now turning into a speaking tour. Uh, and you sort of embody the traits. I think there's a danger there that, that you're supposedly guilty of already having. Or when you set yourself up as the spokesperson for a generation, like the blog post that prompted this podcast. Yes. Mm -hmm. And by the way, listeners, if you think that I sound Marxist, I hope you just heard that. Yeah, I, I was just—I was just thinking. Uh, Danny, Danny started this episode off by saying he was going to try not to be a Marxist, and then uh, <laughs> I already fell off that card. Mi mission accomplished. Uh, the whole That's New York funny. intellectual influence. I apologize. That's no, it's cool, man. It's cool. Like I said, I—we've uh, already got listeners who think of me as the Marxist, and so now we've got two Americanists and two Marxists. So <laughs> we're we're rocking and rolling, man. Uh, it, to wrap things up, I mean, I, I would say that my Socratic question would be, uh, is the attrition in the ranks of what Michael rightly called cultural Christianity, uh, something that we should lament exclusively, or can it also be something that we can celebrate? And there was a real good piece, uh, on the wall street journal.com this weekend, uh, by Russell Moore, who is going to be stepping up soon as the Southern Baptist Convention's president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So, I mean, this is a very, very visible post within the Southern Baptist Convention held, uh, I believe, by Richard Land for a long time. Michael, is that, does that sound right? Oh, I have no idea. Okay, well, we'll say it's Richard Land, and our listeners can correct me. Uh, but Russell Moore, you know, is 41 years old, so he's definitely, you know, on, of the... Generation X persuasion, uh, and what he basically says in this interview is that the days of the moral majority are over. There is no moral majority anymore, so therefore Christians in America need to imagine our role not as setting the broad cultural agenda, but being a visibly prophetic people of distinction. Which is probably uh, how Christianity was always best. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm always cautious about saying Christianity was always this or that, but I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's ultimately better than the moral majority approach right now. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, that's the question that I would pose. Cause one of the things that, you know, the blog post that set this ball a rolling, not to mention the book, you lost me, not to mention the book, quitting church, not to mention, uh, you know, the various, uh, Barna group surveys. Uh, one of the things that they all seem to posit rather than argue for, is that the numerical decline of American Protestantism is an unqualifiedly bad thing. And you guys have already alluded in passing in, in you know, previous parts of the conversation to the possibility that that actually might be something that uh, gives new life to Christianity in North America. And, you know, I, I'm maybe, maybe I'm the rosy-eyed optimist here. I often play that role on this podcast. But I think that ultimately that might indeed be good news. And, of course, this is something that 30 years ago uh, Stan Harawas was heralding as good news in his book uh, Resident Aliens, uh, which you know was a dangerous, subversive book when I was an undergrad. And now our colleague Mark Trump teaches it as the main textbook in Christian ethics. <laughs> so so that's, would you say that's good news for anxious pollsters, Nathan? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, to go back to Danny's response, you know, there's money to be made off of this. Uh, but you know, I, I would say don't necessarily assume that this is going to be something that kills Christianity. It might be something that trims it down so that it's 
a better fighter in the ring. Well, uh, like I said, I mean, that piece is available on the Wall Street Journal. If you, if you do a Google search for Russell Moore from prophetic, from moral majority to prophetic minority, you can read it. Really good little read. But at any rate, uh, looking at the clock and knowing that Danny's got a morning class to teach, I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping it up. Uh, I want to thank Michael Farmer and thank our new co-host, Danny Anderson, uh, for a good yes. first episode. Guest co-host, yes. Um, Guest co-host, you. yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and thank, I do want to thank you for thinking of me in this, and, and, and I apologize to the listeners if I'm messing up your sort of routine. But Not this at all. Is, I uh, think you're a good fit, Danny. <laughs> this is oh, a great yeah, honor. Yeah. It's a and great course, honor for you know, me. David Grubbs. I hope you're listening out there. Keep working on that dissertation. We love you. We can't wait to get you back. We also love Danny. So uh, next week, Michael, what's on the table? I'm going to talk about country music next week. Yeehaw. Yeah, yeehaw. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be another one of those episodes where I'm largely quiet, but that's okay. Welcome to my world. (laughs) Four four years. Four years. You You and Grubbs running roughshod over me. (laughs) <laughs> I was listening to the Carter family last night. I'm just, I'm ready for it. Hey, hey, there we go. Until then, good listeners, you can find us on the internet at christianhumanist.org on Facebook under Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us all over the place on Stitcher. Don't forget Stitcher. Tune into us on Stitcher. I know Trip Fuller listens to us there. Uh, trying to think. If you want to email us, uh, you can hit us on Facebook, or you can go to the blog and leave comments, or you can send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners in all those venues, and hopefully we will be able to read you on air. If not, we do apologize. Uh, until next time then, guys, uh, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and Danny Anderson saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. People try to put us Big sound